Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. You know, when you think of the China threat, you think of the Russia threat, I, I do think that this presents a slow boiling crisis for our country. And I'm, I'm trying to bring all of that knowledge to bear, all the experience and, and what people have given me to make DIA a better organization to support the department's strategic competition problem. I think it's my job to make sure that we can illuminate their activities to the Department of Defense so that our senior leaders can make really smart decisions about, about next steps. Lieutenant General Scott Barrier is the currently serving director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. He is a career Army officer and a career intelligence officer. We are honored that he sat down with us to talk about DIA, the future of intelligence, and the national security threats facing our nation. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. General, thank you so much for joining us. It is an honor to have you on the show. Michael, it's, uh, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me, and I really look forward to this. I know better than most just how busy you are, so thank you for taking the time out of your very, very busy schedule to join us. I would love to start by talking about you a bit, which I know that most leaders of organizations don't like to do. They'd rather talk about their organization. But we have a lot of young professionals and students who listen to the podcast, and they are, no surprise, constantly thinking about their futures. And in doing so, they love to hear about 
the career progressions of others. So I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about you. And I'd love to start by asking you, why did you join the military? Why did you choose the U.S. Army? And how did you become a career intelligence officer? Well, Michael, thanks. Uh, thanks for that question. Uh, pretty humble beginnings in a small town called Spencer, Wisconsin. Uh, my dad had been a sailor. My grandfather had served in the Army in World War II. My brother was in the Army. And from the earliest time that I can remember as a kid, I always wanted to be a soldier. And uh, I always associated success with being uh, an airborne ranger. And so that, that was the big dream. Uh, but then I went to the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point, and I got involved in this thing called the Russian and East Central European Studies uh, program. So this is the early 80s. Cold War was on. Uh, that seemed to be really intriguing. Uh, the history, the politics, it all, it all grabbed me. And I, I soon uh, changed my plan of being an infantry officer to being a military intelligence officer. And some, somehow the Army, the Army uh, sought, sought that out and, uh, and commissioned me as a, a military intelligence second lieutenant. So not many people in college, you know, think they want to be military intelligence officers, right? I mean, it's a little unusual, I would think. Well, I had a, I had a great mentor. So in, in the ROTC program, I, there was a military intelligence captain there that was on the staff. And so when, when he found out that I was in the RISIS program, he, he grabbed me and said, hey, listen, uh, infantry is probably not going to be free. You probably need to go in this direction. So uh, that was great advice. And uh, I, I, I don't regret a bit of that. So you've obviously, you've obviously been successful in your career. Any advice for folks just starting a career about things they should think about uh, in terms of, of being successful down the road? Well, I think what worked for me was, was finding the right mentor uh, at the right time. And so I I quickly got very operationally focused because I was assigned to the kind of units um, like infantry units and, and special forces and special operations units. So I, I found mentors there that had an appreciation for intelligence, that knew how to use intelligence and, and actually taught me to be a better intelligence officer. And, and so I think for, for our youngsters coming in, it's, it's always about finding the right, the right kind of mentor, somebody that maybe necessarily doesn't look like you, but, but somebody that you admire, that uh, you appreciate the career path and, and can help guide you. I think, it's, I think it's important today for kids coming out of school. I think it's really important uh, at DIA for our new officers to find, uh, find a mentor um, inside the organization and, and uh, work the relationship and, and understand the networks and, and get better at your craft much quicker, actually. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I, I was lucky enough to have a handful of mentors. And, um, you know, it's not only ha having somebody who can teach you, but it's having somebody you can confide in and, and uh, you know, be candid with and, and ask tough questions and just have that bond with. It's, uh, it's incredibly important. I'm wondering if there are, General, a couple of moments during your career that, you know, that really stand out for you. You know, for example, that you served in both Afghanistan and Iraq, um, as well as Korea. Are there a couple of couple of moments you can share with us? Well, Michael, great great question. And uh, as I have pondered uh, this uh, almost thirty seven years now on active duty, I think of my career in like three different segments, almost like being in three different armies. When I came in in nineteen eighty four, it was the uh, the Army of the Cold War, and that was really focused on. Uh, the Soviet Union and competition uh, in its own right back then. And uh, my first assignment was Alaska. It was all about defending the Alaska pipeline from a from a Spetsnaz invasion to sabotage that thing, which is kind of funny to think about. Uh, but then when the, the Cold War ended, the wall came down. It was uh, about the army of being ready mm -hmm. and lots of rotations into the Joint Readiness Training Center and the National Training Center and uh, quarterly training briefings. And we were really focused on getting very, very good at war fighting. 
And then uh, the last army that I've been in for the last 20 years, of course, as you know, and have been involved in is this, uh, this global war on terror. And that really changed. And uh, that is the army that I think has probably, for me, been the most impactful because of the sacrifices of so many of our service members and all services, quite frankly, uh, that have uh, fought in Iraq, Afghanistan and other places and the multiple deployments and how our army uh, sort of turned itself uh, upside down to to do the uh, force generation model to make sure that we could have the right forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's a very different army. And as I think about it in those three segments, there are, there are pieces of each of those uh, that I think were very, very special. Uh, but but that's how I think about it today. So a couple, a couple of questions about DIA, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency, which you run. What are the fundamental missions of the organization and how do you see it fitting into the fabric of the broader intelligence community? Thank, thanks for that question. So been been here a year now, have been thinking about that a lot. We've, we've done some things to, to change a little bit, but at its core, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency is an all-source analysis agency that does intelligence operations. That is collection, human collection and technical collection. And our mission really is foundational military intelligence. So if there, if there is an Army or Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps out there, we, it's our job to know about that. And it doesn't matter where it is. Um, uh, you know, the White House and the Department of Defense set our priorities and, and we go after those. I think what's really unique about uh, DI is this global footprint that we have. And Michael, as you know, we have accredited attaches in 183 different countries. Um, we man all of the combatant command um, intelligence staffs. Um, we have uh, we have uh, bases in a lot of different locations and a lot of different operations going on. So I think we're uniquely postured within the Department of Defense to contribute to strategic competition. I think this is true. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you probably have more analysts forward deployed than than any other agency in the intelligence community, including CIA. I would imagine. Well, if you count if you count the analysts that are in our uh, uh, combatant commands, that's for sure. But even even today, we still we still have folks uh, deployed in all the places that you might imagine: Iraq, Syria, uh, Africa, and uh, and we continue that. And as long as our warfighters are out there doing what they do, um, DI will always be there. In, in the last deployments that I've had um, since since nine eleven, there there have I've been surrounded by by DI officers, quite frankly. So if somebody said to you, "What's the difference between DIA and CIA?" What would you say? You know that is a that is a great question. And when I talk to people about DIA and they want to make comparisons, we, we're, we're most like, it's, it sounds strange, but we're most like the CIA. We have similar capabilities. Um, we, don't, we, don't, we don't do covert action. We don't, we don't have the, uh, the air arm, if you will, but uh, we do a lot of similar things that I think are complementary. And, uh, you know, the difference for us is we do, you know, we both do Title 50 kinds of missions. Ours is in support of the Department of Defense and the CIA is really in support of the president and the nation, uh, but they're very, very complementary with very, very similar capabilities. You know, one of the things that I think is important for listeners to understand is that it is important for the president and senior decision makers to have multiple views on an issue, right? So it's actually important for DIA to look at an issue and CIA to look at it and NGA and NSA. And if there's differences, you know, that's okay, right? It's not good to force a decision and it's not good to have just one agency um, looking at something because these issues are so important. Michael, I, I completely agree. You know, we, we look at everything through the, the lens of defense intelligence. You know, the tradecraft may be similar. Uh, our analysts uh, are probably trained in the same ways, but I do, I do believe we bring a different element to that discussion. And I, and I think a variety of points of, of view are really, really good for our senior leaders, for sure. I agree. So, sir, as you think about the future of the Defense Intelligence Agency and where it needs to go, what do you see as 
the big muscle movements, the big investment, the big ideas, as my former boss, Dave Petraeus, used to put it, that that you have to do, that you have to get right for the agency to continue to fulfill its mission in the years ahead? And I know that's probably a tough question. That's actually a great, a great question, Michael. And it really, it really opens the door for me to talk about some of the initiatives that we've, we've taken here. So when I got here a year ago, um, I got with the team and asked some, some pretty tough questions about, about how we were postured for strategic competition. Was the organization that we had uh, set for competition, uh, did we have the right processes in place? And so we did, we embarked on a study and uh, the team came back and you might imagine what the answers would be. It was, we weren't really in the right position in the right set. And so in order, in order to bring, you know, this, this notion of uh, Title 50 defense intelligence to the department's Title 10 strategic competition problem, we, we had to reorganize ourselves. And so, and so we've done that internally. And, and now more of the agency reports directly to uh, uh, Mr. Greg Reichman, who's my deputy director for global integration. Think of him, uh, Michael, as like a chief operating officer for mission uh, in the agency uh, with tasking authority and the ability to, uh, to monitor budgets and, and really set priorities uh, under my direction and really make sure that the team um, is rowing together. And, and through that, we hope to uh, strengthen partnerships, not just foreign partnerships, but say partnerships with academia and partnerships with, uh, with uh, key folks in the de- defense industrial base and think tanks, uh, non-traditional partners, other government partners. Think of uh, Treasury, uh, the FBI as an example. And then, and then really, really at the core, we want to be able to get at strategic competition. And, and that's really um, more about uh, sensitive intelligence, sensitive activities. I won't go into that here uh, but we're doubling down in that arena to, to make sure that uh, we, we can deliver much more than just uh, finished intelligence to the department, perhaps finished intelligence with some options and thoughts on what you might do with that intelligence. You know, the agency CIA just did a big review, and one of the, one of the findings was they need to do much better on the technology front, both understanding uh, foreign commercial technology developments and bringing technology into the building, right, to help them with their mission. And I'm wondering if you face a similar similar problem. Michael, we do. In fact, uh, we're, we're, we have a great innovation office here that, uh, that, that takes all the, the great ideas that are out there in, in demonstrations, and we try to infuse that into, into what we're doing right now. You know, as, uh, as you know, the military intelligence integrated database, what we call MIDB, is morphing and transforming into the machine-assisted rapid repository system, MARS, um, so that's taking that kind of information, um, infusing with uh, advanced AI, ML, and making a, a much more robust uh, and richer database. And, and we need that sort of thinking and those sort of tools to be able to, uh, to compete uh, as we go forward here. Because the databases that we have now, they, they kind of look clunky, <laughs> 1990s clunky, um, Excel, Excel spreadsheet kind of clunky, and, and we can do much better. And, and we're moving down that path right now. Uh, we've got a great program manager and a, and a timeline, and uh, by uh, FY23, uh, we're going to be in a very, very good position to uh, to replace uh, wholesale MADB with uh, with Mars. So this is a question I get all the time. You know, small and mid-sized companies, you know, who say if we have an offering, right? If we have a, a product or service that we think will contribute to national security, contribute to the intelligence community, you know, who do we talk to? So if there's a startup out there that thinks they have something special to offer the Defense Intelligence Agency, what do they do? Right. So there, there, is, a, uh, there is an outward-facing door to the community that does that for us in our S&T team in our innovation office. 
So if somebody has a good idea, a product, uh, a software demonstration, uh, we want to we want to be able to bring them into the building. We want a demonstration of that or a white paper and a discussion about it. And I, I think it's actually pretty easy. And I think uh, we do that pretty well here, actually. General, um, in, in terms of talent, so we've talked about technology, but in terms of talent in both your civilian workforce and your, your, your military workforce, you know, what are you looking for in terms of skill sets, attitudes, behaviors? What do you want your workforce to look like? Michael, thanks for that question. You know, when you when you walk into the into the lobby of DIA before you get to the to the missile lobby, we, we have our uh, we have our workforce ethics um, on the wall as you as you walk in, and in the end, it's uh, it's all about in defense of our nation, right? And so when I think about that, it's really about those those core mission areas. Think of uh, analysis and collection and science and technology development. And then we have our our enabling mission areas, and we we know that we can't do anything without our, our enablers, right? Uh, we, we have to be able to uh, finance ourselves. We have to have uh, mission support facilities. And so we've got this really, really cool blended workforce. And as I think all of that, um, what we need um, are really bright, talented people um, who are patriots that want to serve their country. Um, certainly STEM and those skills are a big part of what we want. But we also want people um, who, uh, who geek out on history, who geek out on, on uh, politics, who geek out on, uh, on social issues. We need that all to really create this uh, diverse workforce that gives us a much better view of the world and, and provides, as you talked about earlier in the broadcast, about the differing views from, from the different intelligence agents. And I think that's really what, what DIA can bring to the Department of Defense. And I've heard you speak before, General, about the importance of of analysts being curious, right? And I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's one of the the things that that you look for in an analyst, just somebody who's curious. We want really curious analysts, but we also want to make sure that uh, they have a great attention to detail for tradecraft. And so, you know, as I as I think about analytical tradecraft, we we rest on that tradecraft. We have to fall back on that tradecraft, and and when we're challenged, I mean, we, we have to analyze um, how we how we uh, executed the tradecraft. So it's it's about everything. So um, I, I think we have a great program here at DI to bring to bring that out for everybody. And I think one of the things that people need to know about the intelligence community is there's a lot of technology, right? Um, big collection systems. Um, but at the end of the day, this is really all about people, right? Particularly at a place like CIA and DIA. Yeah, Michael, you're, you're, you're so right. Uh, you, you know, we're going we're gonna to have increasing volumes of data like we've never seen before. But at the end of the day, it comes, it comes down to the human being to be able to sort it and, and then deliver it in a way that a senior leader can, can actually understand and make use of that. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with General Barrier. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So, General, I'd love to turn to some substantive issues, if I may. And, you know, I'd like to start with Afghanistan and I'd like to ask you two questions. The first is there's been some finger pointing at the intelligence community for 
its analysis of whether the Taliban would take over if we left? And if so, how long would that take? I know you can't go into details, but can you just react to that uh, sense out there that the IC could have done better? Sure. Thanks. Thanks for the question. You know, for, for the first time in a long time, uh, many of the agencies were, uh, I would call, in concurrence on, on how this would end, that, that eventually, you know, the government would collapse um, and that the Taliban would, would, uh, would move in. I, I think, uh, you know, we got, we got wrong for sure the timeline of, of how that would unfold, uh, but really that was based on a set of assumptions. And so, um, you know, in my, in my, from my own personal experience and having deployed to Afghanistan uh, many times, uh, I thought, uh, and my assumption was that the, the government would would hold for much longer, and that uh, and that the fight would be uh, for Kabul. It turns out that that assumption was flawed, and uh, and those assumptions really really under underpin um, all the planning. So, you know, there's there's some work to do there about how we view that, and uh, we we are engaging in a review here in in the Defense Intelligence Agency about that. But we were we were in sync uh, to a great degree, and you know, as as uh, as July unfolded and. And we got into August and, and it was more chaotic. I think uh, it's one of those things. We'll, we'll continue to study this uh, as, as an example and case study of how we can always do better, I, I would say. And then the second question is that a number of senior DOD officials have talked in recent days and even recent in recent weeks and even in recent days about how fast ISIS-K and Al-Qaeda might be able to reconstitute if the U.S. is not able to collect the intelligence it needs to collect in Afghanistan. And if we don't, you know, act to degrade those groups, if they pose a serious threat to the U.S., what can you, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the, uh, the, the Taliban appear uh, to not be impeding uh, Al-Qaeda. And so, you know, I've, I've publicly said something like, you know, one to two years on Al-Qaeda. It's, we're probably in about the same, in the same place with ISIS-K with uh, the number of prisoners that escaped. In, in what appears to be unfolding in Afghanistan right now, so I, I think I think we're in that that one to two two year range, and you know you could you could mince it a little bit with Al Qaeda or ISIS K, but I think as long as they have access to technology and the ability to meet, uh, that means the ability to plan, right? And and yes. so whether they're threatening the homeland or our partners in Europe or other partners in Central Asia, uh, I, I think it's a real possibility, and and that's why the, the you know the over the horizon effort, whatever that turns into, is really really so important for. Uh, for the Department of Defense in our country. And and for the intelligence community, right? They play a huge role in this as well. For sure. And, and Michael, going back to your, you know, your first question, uh, re- really, you know, for, for DI and many of the intelligence, uh, our intelligence partners out here, as, as U.S. forces drew down uh, in Afghanistan, so, so did our intelligence assets and everything that we were doing in Afghanistan. So, you know, when you, when you don't have the touch point day to day that we had for many, many years, you, you start to lose insights there. And I think, that certainly uh, contributed to uh, to where the assessments fell out for sure, and uh, and as you know, we we drew down over the last couple of years uh, to to just what what turned out to be our our uh, our attaches in the uh, in the embassy at the end. Yeah, General, let me move um, west from Afghanistan to Iran. We obviously know from the IAEA that the Iranians are you know aggressively pushing their nuclear program beyond even where it was. When the JCPOA, the the nuclear deal, was signed, which the U.S. withdrew from in 2018, seems to me, just reading the open media, that Iranian proxies are as active as they've ever been across the region, including attacking U.S. troops. How worried are you about Iran at the moment? 
Well, Michael, you know, in the uh, the national defense strategy, Iran is, uh, you know, one of those regional threats that we have to keep an eye on. Uh, you, you know, as well as I do, they've uh, they continue to be active and in, in fomenting the kind of activity uh, that you were talking about. I, I think the big difference now, say, from when I was the, the CENTCOM J2 just in 2014, is the number of proxies that they do have, the expansiveness of uh, IRGC CUDS force across the region. Uh, think of their operations uh, in Yemen. Think of their outreach to uh, Lebanon and LH and the Shia militia groups there. Uh, dangerous, uh, sh- certainly dangerous, and uh, and really requires a, a focus watch on our part. It seems that we need stronger deterrence, right? It seems to me that they don't think anything is going to happen to them as they you know, move forward aggressively on both the nuclear front and the regional front. And just wondering if you kind of share that view or have a different view. Well, I think I think it's uh, it's it's my job to make sure that we can illuminate their activities to the Department of Defense so that our senior leaders can make really smart decisions about about next steps. And so from from my perch, um, not to get into the policy land there, but I want to I want to deliver decisive information at the right time. Uh, to Secretary Austin, to the to Chairman Milley, so that uh, that they can have an understanding of what's going on and give them give them options really of uh, what actions to take. Yeah, let me um, jump to North Korea if I can, General. Before coming back to our peer competitors or near peer competitors, China and Russia, um, North Korea's strategic weapons program. You know this as well as anybody. Its nuclear weapons program, its ballistic missile programs have advanced, have have moved forward across every single administration for the past 30 years, right? The North Koreans are better off at the end than they are at the beginning. Um, The North continues to conduct a number of missile tests, including some submarine-launched ballistic missile tests. And I'm wondering, are those tests meaningful in pushing their program forward? And I'm wondering if there's any reason to think that the next 10 years, I don't want to just focus just on this administration, but if the next 10 years are going to be any different than the last 30 with regard to the North Koreans, just any thoughts you may have on North Korea would be great. Yeah, Michael, I've got a lot of thoughts on North Korea. As you know, I spent a good number of years in, in, in my career trying to predict when uh, when uh, North Korea might conduct provocations or attacks, and uh, it's it's an intractable problem. Um the good news is we, we've got, uh, you know, DI has officers at, at uh, U.S. Forces Korea. They, they watch this problem uh, every day very, very closely with our teammates at uh, Indo-PACOM. And so, you know, as I look at uh, Korea in the last 30 years and, and looking forward, I, 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 it's, I have a hard time seeing my way through what would, what would actually change, uh, change their, their behavior and how they, how they view the world and their own state survival. So I, I, don't, I don't see much of a change uh, in their trajectory at this point. You know, I was um, I was a young North Korean analyst uh, in the early 1990s, and one of the things we used to talk about is when the regime would collapse. Right? We we said, surely this can't last. You know, this can't last forever. Surely, outside information will leak in, and you know, at some point, the regime will come apart. And you know, I think we're still waiting for that. Twenty twenty five years later, it may never happen. Yeah, it's interesting we're talking about North Korea because I'm holding in my hands the uh, the unclassified North Korea military power study that we've we've just uh, completed. I think we uh, we uh, let this go uh, here here in October, and it's a, it's a really nice unclassified reference, and I'd be I'd be happy to send you one. It's uh, it's uh, it's pretty neat, um, and I think uh, one of the one of the things we really do well here at DI is put together these unclassified studies, and North Korea is the newest one that we have. So I, yeah, it's always on our mind for sure. Yeah, I should tell people that you put out these studies and they're available on your website. I, I actually go there every once in a while and 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 see if there's anything new and and they really are 
rigorous, um, thoughtful, well put together. And, you know, students out there who are looking for good information on these issues can find it there. It's, it's actually a great reference for sure. Thank you. Okay. China and Russia, right, are, are near peer competitors. The national defense strategy, the national security strategy, they all talk about, you know, shifting our focus towards those. And I'm wondering, and I know they're very, very different, right? These are very, very different challenges that we face from the two of them. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about each and how you see the challenge that they pose to the United States of America. Sure. I'm happy to do so. You know, uh, Secretary Austin has been very, very clear on China uh, as, as, the, as the pacing threat. Uh, we're in sync with that. That is certainly the priority um, here at DIA. But when I, when I step back and, and think about China, as I have been even in my time as the, as the Army G2, I think about it in, in this form of like a three-stranded cable. And that the first strand of that cable is like she's political strategy, right? Which has been mm-hmm. able to police the party, put uh, the leaders in place that he wanted to, and, and really sort of set the tempo uh, for the kind of reforms he wanted to to uh, to uh, play out China's rise, that that second strand of the cable is really that the the Belt Road Initiative, their economic strategy to move into other countries uh, with infrastructure offerings of five G, buying out debt, building, uh, which has really really fueled their ability to um, afford this this military modernization, which they have. It's been ex- exponential in all, in all domains, to include uh, cyber and space. And then, and then you think about them as a nuclear power, with the intent of modernizing uh, their their nuclear uh, their nuclear capability, and and so you're moving from from pacing threat to to um, eventual existential threat. And so, uh, you know, this is our number one priority here at DI, and I, I think you know the threat is real. Um, but if you go back to the three stranded cable, there would be a, a sheath that would cover that cable, and that that would be the, um, I guess what that would represent the the largest theft of intellectual property in the history of mankind, um, which is what the Chinese have been uh, very active in the last uh, 30 or 40 years, uh, not only us, but against uh, our other partners uh, in the West. And uh, they've done that and continue to do it. They, they present a, uh, a threat uh, in the past. They will uh, represent a threat in the future with that. And our system, our system has, has played into that, unfortunately. So, so that's China. Uh, when I, when I think, when I think about Russia, um, we, we prioritize them behind China, but let's let's not kid ourselves here. Russia Russia is a menace, and uh, they they have a, a competent nuclear triad, and that that is an existential threat. And we we do have to we do have to watch that because uh, you know I think I think Vladimir Putin's kind of tough to read sometimes, and and we have to be very very careful about how we're we're watching Russian activity play out uh, with our partners in, in Europe and NATO. And we we have a a pretty a pretty good effort going going in in the direction of Russia right now to keep an eye on that. So on on China, they they just as you know they just did a hypersonic missile test um, that Chairman Milley really used some strong language on, called it uh, nearly a Sputnik moment, and I guess that fits into the the nuclear advances that you talked about earlier. It does, uh, and so you know, one of the things that DIA does. Uh, really well is try to try to monitor uh, that activity and, and understand it so that so that our acquisition community can be that much better as we as we develop the kinds of weapons that can counter that that sort of thing. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more intelligence matters. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. 
you should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, General, I'm going to ask you a couple of more questions. And the first is that I noticed reading your bio that your two sons are in public service. And you talked earlier about your father, um, your grandfather. My three children are in public service as well. Um, And I'm just, you know, public service has clearly been important to you. And and I'm wondering if you talk a little bit of why. You know, when you come from uh, when you come from a patriotic family, Michael, as as you have it, uh, it's sort of uh, ingrained in you very, very early uh, to serve. And and I think the neat part about where I sit now is I've had all of these. Um, experiences, and I've had all of this interaction with just superb intelligence professionals across the community, and they've they've really given me they give me a lot of insight here. And so, what I'm trying to do right now to give back uh, in these last couple of years in, in my career, and at, at some point um, I'll, I'll I'll retire from this job, uh, but but it's really to use um, that experience and that insight um, in this time right now, which I think is a bit of a crisis. Actually, you know, when you think of the the, the China threat and you think of the Russia threat, I, I, I do think that this, uh, this presents a, a slow boiling uh, crisis for our country. And I'm, I'm trying to bring all of that knowledge to bear all the experience and, and what people have given me to, uh, to make DIA, um, a better organization to support the department's strategic competition problem. And then I'm wondering when you're, when you're with a group of say students, if you happen to be visiting a university, I'm wondering what the pitch is that you make to folks to come work at the defense intelligence agency. Yeah, the pitch is um, we, we are an all source analysis agency and we do collection and it's pretty exciting. And if you want to be challenged, if you want to work the, with the best people um, within national security, uh, you should come to DIA. Not only not only do we have a great mission set here in the national capital region, but guess what? We're global. And so if you want to if you want to go to Hawaii to be an analyst within the Indo-PACOM JIOC, JIOC we're, we're here for you and we can we can make that happen. And so what I try to do is sell everybody on the diversity of the mission set. Uh, the diversity of locations, and uh, and that uh, DIA can be your stop for uh, for the dreams of your future. And I guess if you blend it with with that point you just talked about, right, is that that we're at this inflection point in history with regard to our national security and leadership in the world, right? What better thing to do for your country right now than than serve, right? You put those two things together. Yeah, Michael, you, you hit it there because, you know, we can offer great locations, we can offer a great mission, but but I also know that that uh, tech companies are out, out there that are looking for the same kinds of uh, young people that we are, and they can pay a lot more money. And so it really does come to, to serving your country and, and doing the right thing for America, for sure. So thanks for, thanks for saying that. And then um, the last question, sir, is I'm wondering what you would want our listeners to know about the women and the men of the Defense Intelligence Agency? The women and the men of the Defense Intelligence Agency are some of the most dedicated people I've ever been with, worked around 
and are tireless uh, in their mission to provide this uh, intimate understanding of what's happening in the world uh, for the Department of Defense. And, and if you're so inclined, um, I would love you to join uh, the mission here at DIA because of everything that we do. And, and uh, I, I just feel honored and privileged to, uh, to lead this organization for the short time that I'll have here. And, uh, and we will uh, support the department's programs and do the best we can for uh, the Department of Defense. Maybe let's do, do one add-on here, which is trying to make this pitch to people to be interested in coming to work for you here. What does a career progression look like for, for somebody who you know, has just graduated with a BA or an MA and comes to work for you? What, is, what can they expect in terms of a career progression? So the first, the first thing that they could uh, um, expect is a, is a quality onboarding process where we're going to um, link you up with the right people, uh, right mentorship frameworks to get you uh, integrated into the agency. Um, if you're an analyst, you'll, you'll go to analytical training that we call, we call PACE. Um, you'll be assigned to, say, a, a regional intelligence center here uh, within DI. And within a couple of years, you could move out to Indo-PACOM or United States European Command or move to another segment here, here in the national capital region. And, and before you know it, um, the promotion train will start and then, and then you will rise with more experience inside the agency. And then what we really want, uh, Michael, are global officers. And so we want, we want an officer um, in the combination of a subject matter expert, but also um, getting some leadership training and also the ability um, at some point uh, in the not too distant future to run analytical teams or run collection teams or run scientific uh, development and research teams uh, so that we have an officer within, uh, within 10 or 15 years that, that has the basics and fundamentals of the intelligence craft, uh, whatever they do at the agency, uh, but also to be a very, really, really solid leader to lead the next generation into the fight. General, thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's been terrific. Thank you for taking the time, and I wish you all the best. Michael, it's my pleasure. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. That was Lieutenant General Scott Barrier. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.